preach in a moment, he asked me to pray. So let's do that together. Pray for the preaching of the word. Lord, uh, give us an increased vision today uh, for your church. And uh, help us to see that it's not just some uh, good idea that some old guys uh, dreamed up, but that it is actually central uh, for us in this Christian walk. And so we pray that as Bob opens your word from Philippians uh, in a moment, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes, and we ask that your spirit would speak through him uh, your very words for us uh, in this day. So we look to you for that, and we thank you that you've given your spirit in order to accomplish those things among us. You haven't left us on our own. You've given your spirit, and so we ask Holy Spirit, come and do your work in our hearts. By your word we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everybody. We'll be uh, looking at Philippians chapter 1. And our text starts with verse 7. I kind of want to start at verse 6 because it's one of my favorite promises in the whole Bible, even though it overlaps with what was preached last Sunday a little bit. And to complete the sentence, we'll start reading at verse 3. But just keep backing up, not all the way to 1. But uh, listen to the word of God. Paul is writing from jail. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May it be. Last Sunday, we found out that the last time we preached through the book of Philippians was about 25 years ago. And 25 years ago, while you were hearing the preaching of the book of Philippians, Bob and Grace and Ethan and Emily moved to Lafayette, Georgia, put all our stuff in a U-Haul and park it in this yard next to this little house. Since our sale of our house up here fell through, we don't have any money to buy a house, so we decide to camp out at this little house that the church bought to meet in. And so we set up a mattress, and I'm lying on the floor looking at the ceiling fan going around and around, and I'm saying, what have I just got myself into? What the heck am I doing here? I don't know anything about planting churches. I'm supposed to start a church? What do I do? Just like walk in and say, let there be church. What, what, how do you do that? I have no idea how to do that. 
And you know what? That was 25 years ago. I was there for nine years. I still feel an affection for those dear brothers and sisters, most of them. But I feel it. I feel an affection for them. You know, uh, I think it was Randy Neighbors who said recently that um, when you plant a church, it's like your life. And boy, it sure can be. It, uh, with all the dangers that go with that. And uh, not only the, uh, the joy of doing the work of the Lord and seeing uh, people saved and seeing a church grow, but also the sense of how it just grabs onto your heart and it won't let go. And sometimes it can take over things that it shouldn't take over. And uh, it can become all-consuming. But there's this love connection that's there because, uh, because of that church plant. And Paul is feeling it for the Philippians. He is feeling the love. And he's going to talk about his feelings. Paul, the crusty old bachelor who writes theology, is going to talk about his feelings. You love it? Sometimes we're so afraid of being feelings-driven that we don't talk about feelings at all. But Paul doesn't mind talking about his feelings because he loves these people. He says in verse 7, I hold you in my heart. And then he says in verse 8, I yearn for you. I miss you. I'm stuck up here in jail and I can't get to you. And I miss you. I want time with you. I want to be with you. And it's with the affection of Christ. The word affection in the original Greek means intestines. In other words, I feel it in my gut. The love that I have for you. Whenever somebody from New Life Philippi comes by to see me in jail, I'm going, yes! Here comes Epaphroditus. I love that brother. How's everybody else? i got to know. And that's how he feels. He's got this connection of feelings with the people of God. And he says, it is with the love of Jesus... Jesus is the one who gives me those feelings. It is through Jesus Christ that I feel these affections, these deep gut-level affection for the people of God. Why does he feel this way? Well, I just told you my story about church planning. There's another story behind this book, and it's found in Acts chapter 16. You can turn there and check me and see if I'm getting it right. Acts chapter 16 uh, before he gets to, before he uh, Paul uh, gets to uh, Macedonia, which uh, Philippi is in Macedonia. So if you hear Macedonia, Philippi, you know they're connected. Before he gets there, he's planning on going somewhere else, but the Spirit of God says, "No, you're not going there." Paul says, "Fine, I don't know where I'm going." Until he goes to sleep that night, and then he goes to sleep, and in a dream. Somebody from Macedonia comes to visit him. And he says, we need you to come. Please help us out here in Macedonia. We need somebody to talk to us about the gospel. So, Paul gets there, and this is what he finds. First of all, he can't find a synagogue. There's no synagogue in Philippi because you have to have at least ten Jewish men living in a city in order to have a synagogue. And they're not there. 
You know what he finds? Women praying together by the river. So um, he gets there and he, and he sees these women and they had come together and they're praying. And one of those women was a businesswoman. She was from Thyatira. Her job was to run a business that involved dyeing garments with purple dye. And so she was uh, well-respected. She had, you know, she was, she, she was a business person. And the Lord opened up Lydia's heart to pay attention to the gospel that was being preached by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household, she said, well, look, if you, you judge me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she's also a little pushy. And so... As they were going to the place of prayer, they've, become this, they've done this as a regular thing. This is how Paul plants churches. He finds a, a, a cluster of, 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 of women at, at the river, and we're going to all, all pray together. So we're just praying together. He preaches the gospel. Lydia's heart is opened up by the Lord to receive the gospel. And then as Paul is on his way back to that meeting, he is annoyed by a girl who comes along behind him under the influence of an oppressive demon sent by the devil. uh, And she's going around saying, these people are sent from God to tell us how to be saved. Now, there's nothing untrue about what she was saying, but she's saying it because from this source, from an evil source, and it just annoys the heck out of Paul and Silas. Now, the problem is that this little girl is the property of a couple of evil men who are using her to predict the future, and they're making money off of her. I didn't have this going on in Lafayette. I I didn't see any of that. I saw some pretty crazy things, though. I won't go into all that. But Paul and Silas stop and... Just out of problem, I mean, it just sounds like they were just getting fed up with it. And they asked Jesus to take the demon out of this girl. And she is now set free from the spiritual influence. But her, the folks who paid good money for this girl are very angry. And they get Paul and Silas in trouble. Paul and Silas get put into jail. And they get chained up hand and foot. And right around midnight, Paul says to Silas, Hey, Silas, you remember that song we were singing in church? You're not going to sing now, are you, Paul? Yeah. Are you sure? I don't want to sing. I'm not in the mood. I've been, my, I, they, we've been, they've been beat up. They've been scourged. They've been, you know, their, their backs are ripped open by the, the merciless soldiers who have put them there. And they're sitting there. And, and, and Paul says, Yeah, I'm going to sing. Silas says, Okay. I'll let you sing alone. And they start singing, How great is our God. (laughs) They start singing, Holy, holy, holy. And the two of them are singing praises to Almighty God who causes an earthquake and causes the doors of the prison to fly open. And now everybody could leave, but they don't. The jailer... This hardened person who is used to seeing nothing but cruelty and brutality 
realizes that he's got a big problem on his hands because if he lets all these people go, then they're going to take him and treat him like one of them. So he says, help me. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, good pun, because we're going to tell you how to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose again from the dead. He is alive and he will take away all of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the Philippian jailer trusts Jesus that night. So they all go to the Philippian jailer's house. And uh, the Philippian jailer and his family wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. And Paul takes Philippian jailer and he baptizes him, washing his sins away. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a beautiful scene. Then they all go back to the jail and they're all just waiting for everybody to wake up the next morning. And the, the governor says, um, uh, listen, you can uh, go now. Uh, just don't tell anybody we treated you that way, okay? Paul says, uh-uh. Uh, you just messed with a Roman citizen. And you didn't even give us a trial. And you treated us really badly. Now, if you let us speak publicly, well, anyway, that's how the church in Philippi got started. It's amazing, church planting. So, so anyway, so he spent time with these people, and he has this gut-level affection for them. Because verse 7, it says that, back to, back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, they received the grace of God together. Paul needs the grace of God every day. The church needs the grace of God every day. And so they receive the same grace, grace for preaching the gospel and grace for suffering. He said, do you see that in there? It says, we, have, we are both partakers of the grace of God, both in the defense and confirmation of the gospel and in my imprisonment. Now, I noticed something here. If Paul only talked about his suffering, then he would be their project. But if Paul only talked about the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he would be their hero. Neither is healthy long term. So Paul says, I'm going to be up front with you about my suffering, and I'm going to talk to you about the progress of the gospel. How it is changing lives. How Jesus Christ, through his resurrection and through his spirit, is bringing the gospel to bear on people's lives. I'm going to tell you all about that, because I know that that's exactly what you need to hear to bolster your faith in a risen Christ who is still working by his spirit. But I'm also going to tell you about my sufferings. And I noticed this. I was sitting in, in, uh, right here uh, on Sunday school one morning, and Paul was talking, and, and I, we were reading a passage in um, Timothy where Paul is talking about his sufferings. And it hit me. I never tell people when I suffer because I don't want them to know. I'd rather be a hero than a project. And then it also hit me that some folks, all they talk about is somebody did this to me, somebody did that to me, I've been sick, I'm 
feeling bad, I got the blues, and that's unhealthy long-term as well. So I think Paul, in a way, is kind of giving us a model for how we can pray for each other and how we can love each other as a church. It's both. You think about your relationships with others in this church. We're partakers of the grace of God together. Do you relate to people either as heroes or projects? You look at verse 7 and 8 again. Are there any clues in this text? You look at verse 7 and 8 again. Paul says, all. He says, you all, y'all. Paul really wants to be with all of them, all of us, no matter how needy, no matter how rock star, all of us reflect the very image of God. And you look for the stamp of the image of God in the face of the people. You see Jesus in one another's faces. And you look for that. You look for the work of God in everyone. You treat everyone as someone who is so uh, fearfully and wonderfully made and, and, and given that great dignity that the Bible assigns to human beings. And then you explore and you listen for the history and you, you, know, you ask questions of one another and you find out that they're neither a rock star and, nor a victim. They are people created in the image of God for whom Jesus Christ has given his life, who are being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God, who are on their way to glory with you. They are walking with you. They are valuable in the sight of God. They're valuable in in your sight. Uh, You look at people with the eyes of the gospel. You look at people through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Paul said that that, uh, in another letter, he says that we used to look at people according to the flesh, just who they appear to be, but we look at them in that way no longer. We look at people differently. So, if you want to feel the love in the body of Christ, check yourself in three things. One, do I long to see my brothers and sisters? This meeting on Sunday mornings fills something in me that I cannot do without. I'll just be upfront with you. I can't be a Christian without you. This time together, this time of worshiping together, this time of praying together, the conversations we have together fill something in me. Do you look forward to seeing all the brothers and sisters? If people can't get to know me, am I holding out on them? Y'all have never done that, right? If people can't get to know me, am I holding out on them? I... um, have a couple of friends that recently they have revealed some very deep struggles in their lives. And the thing that the Lord gave me to say to them was, as I hear your struggle, I see more to love. You have opened up your heart to me. I feel privileged to hear what you have opened up to me. And I want to respond to that by seeing that there is more of my understanding of you to love. And thirdly, if nobody wants to hang out with me, am I only needy all the time? 
Listen to yourself. Listen to your conversations with others. Is it all about how somebody trashed you, how somebody messed you over? Is it all about how things are bad and you're, you know, uh, uh, you're just always singing the blues? Um, Now, here's another thing about feeling the love in the church. Uh, You're going to love this. Your heart's got to be open. Because if your and if your heart is open, you know what it's open for. It's not only open for joy. If your heart's really open, your heart is open to get hurt. Um, Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, "My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish." of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I am perplexed over you. It hurts like everything to love you like this and to see you stray. Elders, pastors, involved members, you know what I'm talking about when you have seen people that you love stray. And it hurts like everything. And it makes you want to wall yourself up so that you won't hurt so much. But that's the wrong way to go. The unlikely path to joy is to open up your heart to pain. And so Paul's heart is open for pain. He says in Romans chapter 9, thinking about his fellow Jewish people that are not believing in Jesus Christ, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So he's opened up his heart to joy and he has opened up his heart to pain. Feelings. Um, Maybe if nobody knows you, you're guarding your heart from feeling anything. That's not biblical. We think it is sometimes. We think, oh, we're not about feelings. We're about truth. The truth of God is deeply felt, and it moves us into the lives of others. And let's talk a little bit more about love, because that's what Paul prays for for the church. He says, he says uh, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This thing about relationships in the church is why he's going to pray for this overflowing love in verses 9 through 11. Paul goes to God, and out of his love for his church, he says to God, I want you to please give the Philippians all you have for them. I want to see you take them from point A to point B. I want to see that you, I want to see you take them all the way to glory. I want to see you give them an overflowing love for one another. To take the work that you have begun and finish it to the day of Christ Jesus. You see what he's doing? He is cashing in on the promise that he has just stated in verse 6. I am confident that God who began a good work in you will finish it to the day of Christ Jesus. And so he's cashing in on that promise by praying. And that is what you do with the promises of God. The promises of God generally don't just happen in a vacuum. The promises of God are there for you to grab onto by faith, actively, 
grab onto by faith. You read the promises of God, you pray the promises of God, you feel the weight of the promises of God, and you ask for the fulfillment of all of those promises by faith. This is life by faith. This is how you walk by faith. Because God has spoken and God has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy. The God who has sent his son Jesus Christ to take our place in in his own wrath for our sins so that our sins would be gone. The God who has promised us and given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The God who has promised us and given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the things to come. And a a present reality and the powerful working within us to glorify Jesus in in our daily lives. The God who promised is the God who delivers. Every promise he makes is yes. Every promise he makes is going to come true. And you grab on those promises actively as you live a life of faith. So, God started a good work, and he's going to complete it. Verse 9, I pray for love that abounds. Another word, overflows. You ask according to the nature of God who does everything abundantly. Do you remember when people were... Uh, were following Jesus Christ, and they got to a wilderness place, and there was no place to get food, and and uh, and they were all hungry, and 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 Jesus uh, fed them miraculously, and as he fed them miraculously, and everybody was completely satisfied, there were twelve basketfuls of food left over. This is our God. This is the way our God does things. And Paul is saying, I want those 12 basketfuls of love overflowing in the church of Philippi. This love abounds. It overflows. When Jesus gets involved, it's always more than enough. So what does that look like in the church? Everybody just being nice and chill? You know, that's what love is, right? Everybody just avoid conflict um, and be nice and be chill with each other. That's, that's what we do, right? It's something much deeper than that. When love abounds, you do crazy stuff because of love. When love abounds, as Paul is praying that love would abound, and we can take this prayer and apply it to our own church. When love abounds, you do crazy stuff, all because of love. Love becomes the motive behind healthy ministry. Why do you help with the nursery? Because I love those children. Why did you go to Japan? Because I love the coming. Why do you come here and worship God on Sunday morning? Because I love Jesus. Why? Why do you work with the after-school program? Because I love those kids. Why do you work with Olney Christian School? Because I love the kids, I love their parents, and I love Olney. Why do you teach Sunday school? Because I love the Word of God and I love the people that I'm teaching and I want to see the Word of God take and have the effect in these people's lives. Why do you operate the chairlift? Because I love the people that I have the privilege of helping up the stairs. Why are you a deacon? Because I love the people that God brings into our lives. 
You see, love makes you do all kinds of crazy things when love is the motive. When lo- when, so the love overflowing in the church of Jesus Christ, it becomes the motive for which you do everything you do. So that it's not about, I have to stay busy in order to look like a decent Christian. It's a motive of love. So when love abounds, the church becomes a healing community. It becomes a safe place to talk about whatever God is doing in your life, even if it's messy and even if it's embarrassing. When love abounds, marriages start to turn around and get better. When love abounds, Alney notices Jesus. When love abounds in the church, the will of God is done here on earth as it is in heaven. When love abounds, the kingdom of God grows. And when love abounds, you grow. Because the word of God also says the one thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Now, what does that mean? It means that I place my security and my joy and my identity firmly on the finished work of Jesus Christ who has died for me and taken away my sins and given me his righteousness and that issues and expresses itself quite naturally in a motive that that propels me to you and to God and to the world in love so the church needs abundant love that is also full of knowledge, the truth. Tony Evans once said, the church ought to be the one place you can go where they're going to tell you the truth. And our love is according to the truth. If you think of overflowing love, you can think of overflowing love rippling down like a mighty river with river banks. And the river banks are truth and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment keeps your love from going off the rails and going, I mean, yeah, love is, gonna, is going to motivate you to do some pretty crazy things, but those crazy things are according to the truth and discernment. It's what you do with the Word of God. You're growing in the Word of God. That's why we teach the Bible here. Uh, as, you, as you grow in your discernment, as you grow in your knowledge of who God is, it is important to have decent theology. It really is. I mean, you know, you have a conversation with someone about a tragedy, and, and that tragedy occurred, and you go, man, you know, I'm trusting God in the midst of this tragedy. And somebody else says, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. He doesn't do things like that. He doesn't, he's not involved in anything bad. Oh, let me tell you about the sovereignty of God. You see, theology plays a big part in your relationships with others and how you deal with tragedy together, how you deal with life together, how you deal with your marriages. So he's saying that he wants to see this, this abundant love directed by the riverbanks of knowledge and discernment, that you may know with discernment, discernment, so we can approve what is excellent, test the things that differ, approve the things that matter, majoring on the majors, and not majoring on the minors and not minoring on the majors. Uh, It's important to know about the ways of God and how to counsel people with truth and discernment based on scripture. The way you love is either going to be unhealthy or it's going to be full of truth and discernment. So he says, I want to see the church of Philippi and the church of Philadelphia as well with this abounding love, overflowing love directed 
by the riverbanks of knowledge and discernment. Well, we sure can't make that happen, can we? That's why it's a prayer. Prayer is helplessness before an almighty God who is able to give the things that he promises. And this is something that's in his will. If you pray for that, you're, gonna, you're, go, you're praying according to the will of God. And then he says, in order that, still in verse 10, in order that the church will become pure or sincere. In other words, you become the real deal. That nobody can hang a scandal on you and make it stick, blameless. In order for the church to be real, that people don't look at new life and say, oh, they're such posers, they're such fakers, they're so religious, they've got their noses up in the air, and they don't understand how to deal with real people. No, nobody's going to say that about you if love is abounding with truth and discernment in order that you may become the real deal, in order that you may become sincere. That's what the Greek word means. That you are on the inside what you are on the outside. And the gospel and the work of God brings that together. Goodness, I've lived years and years and years of my life trying to project an image. And, and the older I get, the more Jesus is bringing inside Bob and outside Bob into one Bob. <laughs> so that when you relate to me, I hope you're getting the real thing, you know? That's a process, and it's taken forever, but it's getting better, you know? So, but, but that's what we need. That's exactly what we need. And blameless, um, you know, we're not causing anybody to stumble. And as we look to the return of Jesus Christ, John puts it this way. John, uh, the apostle, says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. That's the completion of what God has started. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So this overflowing love, flowing down between the riverbanks of truth and discernment, result in sincerity and result in purity and blameless holiness. Looking forward to the day of Christ, mentioned two times in these few short verses, it's on Paul's mind. It's the thing that we look forward to. It puts everything into perspective. Jesus Christ is returning. He is coming back just as he was taken away from us at the time of the ascension bodily. He is going to bodily return back into our world and bring everything to justice, and bring everything right. And even though we deserve to be judged with all sinners, Jesus Christ has taken that judgment upon himself, and when he returns, we will only have one thing, the joy of seeing his face with no fear. And then he says that you're going to be full of the fruit of righteousness. People coming out of being discipled in this abundant love church display the fruit of righteousness. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control, even self-control. Oh, goodness, I need self-control so badly. Um, that's the fruit that comes from Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the new life. It's that new joy. 
and you remain in Jesus, you spend time with Jesus, Jesus says that you will bear fruit. And so uh, that results in supernaturally holy living that points people to Jesus, and it's all for, verse 11, the glory and praise of God. God's work from beginning to end, God gets all the credit in the church and in the community as he brings it to completion. So the point of Paul's prayer is for God to be made famous. That's what we want to see. I would love to walk, I would, I would love to see the day. You know, I, I just took a bike ride down 5th Street just to, just to feel what's going on on 5th Street in Albany. And I just, I think 5th Street is kind of cool, you know? All the double parking and, and the, the deals going down on the corner and, and uh, some crazy stuff going on. But I see people who are created in the image of God. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, what are you going to do? What are you going to do through New Life Church to reach the folks that are out here on 5th Street, I'm, uh, and I'm driving down 5th Street, and I'm thinking, how, you know, in my bicycle, I'm thinking, what if I ran into people on 5th Street and said, oh, you're from New Life. That's where, that's where they talk about Jesus, and Jesus has made a difference in my life. Well, I mean, you know, to, to see, for New Life to make Jesus famous on 5th Street, for New Life to make Jesus famous on this corner right here, it's happening. Oh, they're the people who really love my children. They're the people that are educating my children. They're the people who invite my children to come over in the afternoon and they help them with their schoolwork, and my kid's going to go to college because of what they did. That makes Jesus famous. And that's our whole purpose. For God to get the credit, God to get the praise, God to get the honor and the glory. So, got some questions to pray over and we'll be done. How's your love life? Are there some folks in this room that you have gut affection for? When you see them coming, yes, you're so happy to see them because you know you need your brothers. You know you need your sisters. You need that encouragement that comes through humans that God is God, God designed for us to have in our lives. How can we as a church receive this blessing and promise by faith? another thing to think about. Could this prayer become part of your prayers for your church? In fact, let's do this right now. Could I have like two, um, while the worship team comes back up and we'll, we'll end with a, with a song, uh, I wonder if, um, if we could just bow for prayer and I wonder if, if a couple of people, two or three people, could pray this prayer over this congregation. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of stupid to talk about it and not do it? That'd be dumb. You know, why, why, why are we reading the Word of God if we don't do it? Uh, so let's do that. Let's take just uh, two or three of you. Pray good and loud so everybody can hear you. Pray this prayer over this community of disciples. Okay? Let's pray.
the name of Jesus, amen.